tonight we're going to continue going through the book of James and the Bible reading tonight comes from James chapter 3, uh, it's verses 1 to 12. Uh, you can find that on page 1218 of the Pew, Pew Bibles or you can just follow along on the screen. The title of this passage is Taming the Tongue. Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. We all stumble in many ways. Anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect, able to keep their whole body in check. When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. All kinds of animals, birds and reptiles and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. Uh, now I'd just like to invite Lauren up uh, to give the sermon tonight and I'll quickly pray for her. Heavenly Father, thank you for Lauren um, and the knowledge and wisdom that you've given to her so that she might come up and share her thoughts on this passage with us. Lord, I thank you for Lauren's willingness to come up here uh, and stand in front of us all, um, yeah, to just help us come to a better understanding about what we've just read. Um, Lord, I ask that you'd be with each of us in the congregation here, that we might open up our hearts and let ourselves be humbled uh, before your word and that we might come away from tonight uh, having learned something new. Um, yeah, Lord, I just pray that you would give Lauren wisdom and help her to not lean on her own understanding of this passage, but to let the words that she speaks come from you. Amen. The tongue has the power of life and death. That's the sobering pronouncement of Proverbs 18.21. The tongue has the power of life and death. Words so provocative that when I typed them into my internet browser this week to confirm the exact uh, chapter verse reference for this message, uh, the search engine actually responded with concerns for my well-being. Uh, genuinely, not making this up, typed in the verse and I was reassured that I was not alone, uh, that help was available, I was provided the phone numbers for both Lifeline and Triple Zero. Uh, who knew that searching Bible verses would set off such red flags on the internet? Uh, now while this was most likely just some kind of glitch in the AI, presumably triggered by the word death in the search request, it did strike me as strangely perceptive 
uh, as though the wording of this Bible verse had somehow prompted the computer to go one step further and consider the potential consequences of words, how the tongue really has the power to leave wounds so severe that this kind of help and reassurance is genuinely necessitated. You know, the old schoolyard rhyme proclaims, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. I think we can all agree that is a monumental falsehood. Words have the capacity to pierce us more deeply, even more tragically than any physical injury. We are so profoundly impacted and shaped by the words that are spoken into our lives for better and for worse. The tongue has the power of life and death. Over the last couple of weeks, we've been journeying through the book of James, and it's one of those books in the Bible that can make for some uncomfortable, convicting reading. Uh, James doesn't really pull his punches. And while a surface-level reading might leave you with a twisted impression of a works-based righteousness, what James is really concerned about is holistic faith. See, the message of the gospel is, undoubtedly, that we are saved by grace through faith. We are not saved on the basis of our own works or righteousness. Let's be absolutely clear about that. But, crucially, as we heard in week one of our James series, our faith has consequences. Our faith is not meant to be some merely compartmentalized intellectual assent to gospel truth but rather a holistic, lived-out reality, shaping and informing all that we do. And that's really the heart and soul of James. It's pointing us beyond a transactional salvation to a transformational one. Now, we heard from Danny last week on James 2, the relationship between faith and deeds, how an authentic faith is demonstrated through our actions. Now today in chapter 3, we see it's not just the things we do that are important, it's the things that we say. A holistic faith includes honoring God with our words. Now this has already come up briefly back in James chapter 1. He cautioned us about being slow to speak. I talked about how we should keep a tight rein on our tongues. And here in chapter 3, James is basically doubling down on this same message uh, with this collection of vivid and confronting imagery. It's just analogy central in James 3. Uh, He talks about how you can control a whole horse with a small bit in its mouth, uh, how it's a very small rudder that steers the whole direction of the ship, how the smallest spark can set a whole forest ablaze. I mean, he is pulling out every illustration he can think of to emphasize the power and the influence of human speech. He is clearly intent on driving home this message. He does not want a single person to miss this point. Why? Why is James so hung up on this? Why does this issue get so much airtime in this relatively short letter? I think that can be summarized in two basic points. One, this is a serious problem. Two, this is a serious problem for everyone. We heard already those solemn words from Proverbs 18, the tongue has the power of life and death. Our words are seriously powerful. 
They not only shape us personally as we use them, but they impact all those around us. And while our words can build up and encourage and inspire, they can just as easily tear down, leave scars, even set metaphorical forests ablaze. Our words have consequences, often more than we'd like to admit. And as followers of Jesus, we cannot afford to be ignorant of this fact. This is what James is trying to impress upon us. This is a serious issue. It demands our full attention and response. Uh, Tom Wright comments, any pretense of being devout that doesn't result in a serious working over of speech habits is a sham. This is a central and vital part of what it means to be truly human. See, James isn't bringing to light some niche issue that only affects a select few. You know, taming of the tongue is relevant for everyone. How we communicate is a central and vital part of what it means to be human, which makes honoring God with our words a central and vital part of holistic faith. And yet, as James cautions, it is one of our biggest stumbling blocks. It's where we can most often fall down. So let's dive in a little deeper to what James might be talking about here. Uh, for all his colourful analogies, James is actually quite broad in his condemnation of the tongue. Uh, he calls it a restless evil full of deadly poison. He doesn't really expand on the specifics. Uh, helpfully for us, though, there's plenty of other places in Scripture that highlight the sorts of things we should be watching out for in our speech. Uh, particularly in the New Testament epistles, we get a lot of the what I call the what not to do lists. Uh, in Colossians 3, uh, the Apostle Paul name checks anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language, lying, uh, all speech practices to rid ourselves of in kingdom living. Uh, there's a similar sort of list in 2 Corinthians, which also includes the specific condemnation of gossip. Uh, in Philippians 2, Paul tells us to do everything without grumbling or arguing. So warning against complaining, disputing. And then it's kind of a blanket summary. Ephesians 4.29 says, Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. So that one's really a, a catch-all for anything that wasn't specifically itemized uh, in previous lists. It basically gives us a standard litmus test for our words. Is this helpful for building up others? Will it benefit those who listen? Now, in the face of these fairly convicting exhortations and also knowing how hard it is for us to be entirely blameless in this area, as James well reminds us, Sometimes in our response to this teaching, we can revert to what I like to call pharisaical defense mechanism mode. Uh, it's where we choose to congratulate ourselves on the sins we are not committing rather than think or focus about areas where we might be struggling. Uh, you know, we hear these what not to do lists and we might think to ourselves, much like the Pharisee in the Luke 18 parable, I thank you, God, that I am not like those other people, those who maliciously lie or those people who constantly swear or who openly abuse and curse everyone around them. You know, as long as we can point to someone, quote unquote, worse than us, then that sort of becomes our makeshift litmus test. You know, rather than using the Christ-like standards set by Paul in Ephesians 4, we use this one of subjective comparison 
because that's a whole lot easier for us to live with. But James isn't about easy, uh, and I'm not going to be about easy today either. Uh, So rather than focusing our time on the absolute worst ends of these spectrums, I want to narrow in on some more subtle areas, uh, perhaps those less obvious behaviors where we can be more susceptible to stumbling in our speech habits. And I want to preface this with these words from Eugene Peterson's rendering of Romans 12 in The Message. It says, here's what I want you to do, God helping you. Take your everyday ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work and walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for him. Don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. You'll be changed from the inside out. Readily recognize what he wants from you and quickly respond to it. Unlike the culture around you always dragging you down to its level of immaturity, God brings the best out of you, develops well-formed maturity in you. And you see, I've highlighted those references to culture in there. It's because when I was considering where we are most susceptible to stumbling in our words, I kept thinking how we are formed and influenced by the culture around us, how sometimes we fit into it without even really thinking. And I think one of the prime examples of that for us is the Aussie banter culture, uh, whether it's mates bringing each other down for a laugh or the pervasive tall poppy syndrome where we're criticizing those in power like politicians, I think we are somewhat culturally hardwired to tear people down. There's actually a, a documentary I watched recently that highlighted this concept so powerfully to me. Uh, how many of you are familiar with the heavy metal band Parkway Drive? See those hands, love that. Look, I'll confess, they're not exactly on my personal Spotify rotation, uh, but my husband is a bit of a metal fan, uh, and he's listened to some of their music over the years, and he was keen to check out this documentary episode they did uh, with Australian Story. Maybe some of you caught it on ABC last year. So Parkway Drive, they're an Aussie band. Uh, They've been together almost two decades, and they originally formed, I think, when they were just like teenage surfer mates in Byron Bay, and they ended up going on to have extensive global success, which continues to this day. Now, the reason they were profiled on Australian Story is because they had reached a crisis point in their band. Uh, Their relationships with one another had really broken down. They were basically on the verge of breaking up, but instead... They made the decision to do group therapy and see a counsellor together to to try and work through their issues like any typical heavy metal band would. (laughs) So this journey is tracked over the course of the episode and the bass player, Jaya, uh, he wasn't considered a core member of the band when they first started the counselling. So he wasn't attending the initial group therapy, but the band later insisted that he should come along to the remaining sessions. And he initially was like sure I haven't really got anything to say like you sure you want me there and they're like yep we really want you there and this is what he reflected back about his experience I was completely blindsided because I went in expecting not to talk and all of a sudden they all said something really nice about me and what they appreciate about me and it was so so hard I'm about to cry talking about it now because it's just so foreign to hear your friends saying nice things about you. 
mean, my heart just broke at that line. It's so foreign to hear your friends saying nice things about you. I just wanted to respond with the words of James 3.10. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. It should not be foreign to say nice things to our friends. And yet these words from Jaya just seem to perfectly sum up the toxicity of banter culture that exists in so many corners of Australian life. Now, I highlight this not because I think that toxicity is rampant in our QBATS community, but rather because I know nearly everyone in this community will be encountering that culture in other spheres of your lives. Maybe at your workplace, university, sports club, maybe with certain friends or family members, maybe the things you see on social media. I mean, it really is all around us. And as followers of Jesus, seeking to live as kingdom people in a fallen world, we need to be hyper-aware of what might be influencing us. As Eugene Peterson says in that Romans 12 rendering, we don't want to become so well-adjusted to our culture that we fit into it without even thinking. Maybe you have found yourself being pulled into that seemingly harmless banter culture, going for the laugh at the expense of someone else. Maybe you succumb to the, the tall poppy syndrome and join that critical pylon of politicians or sports people or celebrities. Maybe you see the worldly influence manifesting itself in a different way altogether. You know, perhaps rather than unhelpful banter, you find yourself more susceptible to gossip, you know, unable to resist just being pulled into those speculative and judgmental conversations about others. I mean, that is a form of communication that has been entirely normalized by our culture to the point where gossip has even sometimes become a cornerstone for social bonding. And then speaking of cultural normalization, we also have the socially acceptable form of anger, road rage, uh, where somehow being behind the wheel gives us a free pass to outward expressions of impatience and judgment and selfishness and spite and can get real ugly. Now, these examples could go on and on. Uh, There are so many cultural influences that are subtly shaping our speech habits. And look, I'm not proud to confess, I have personally fallen short on basically every single one of these. Like, it is just too easy for our words to get the better of us sometimes. So what can we do? Uh, Because to be honest, James doesn't give us a whole lot of hope in this passage. Uh, In fact, he literally says, no human being can tame the tongue, which is a little bleak and defeatist on surface level, but I actually think it points us to a greater truth, uh, that this is not something we can ever achieve in our own strength. We need God's help. We need the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit to refine and purify us. Now, as we talked about in our spiritual formation series last year, just because it's God's work in us, doesn't mean there isn't anything for us to do as well. Uh, We actually need to partner with God in this process. We need to make ourselves open and present to be intentionally available and attentive to the refining work that he wants to do in us. So I've got a few thoughts on what this can look like in this particular area. Uh, So firstly, we need to recognize where we are stumbling. Uh, Some instances may be really obvious to us, but Others could probably be lurking in our blind spots. 
This is where we need to be bold and pray for conviction, uh, to ask the Spirit to bring to mind situations or relationships where our words may have been unhelpful. Perhaps it's even going back to some of those what-not-to-do verses in the New Testament and look at those lists and ask God to reveal where you need to be more attentive in refining your speech life. Is it slander? Is it gossip? Is it malice? Is it complaining? That's mine. Uh, Meditate on those lists before God. Ask Him to show you where you need to be refined and have the courage and humility to receive His counsel. Secondly, flowing from that, we need to recognize when and where we are most susceptible. Because usually there are particular contexts or certain relationships where we find ourselves more likely to stumble in one of these areas. We need to be aware of these and we need to be proactive. So as an example from my own life, uh, there is someone in my family circles who I have sometimes found it hard to connect with. And the default, easiest, common ground that we would end up finding was joining together to make fun of someone else. (laughs) And I recently found myself really convicted over this. Uh, The fact that I was trying to build up one relationship by just tearing down another. And so now being aware of this, um, (coughs) (coughs) excuse me, uh, being aware of this, I try to be proactive when I go into conversations with this person. I think intentionally about what else could we talk to one another about. I even come in with topics I have prepared in advance, which might sound like a really high maintenance way to do small talk, but it is because I know that if I do not think about it, I will end up on the path of least resistance and I will be pulled back into that unhelpful banter. So it can be a valuable exercise to take some time to prayerfully consider where am I most susceptible and how can I be proactive? Maybe for you, it's when you're driving. Maybe you fall too easily into road rage. Well, how about praying every time you get in the car? You know, offer that commute as a time of worship to God and arm yourself with an attitude of blessing others and especially blessing those who curse you because that's probably going to happen on the roads. Or perhaps maybe more similar to my example, there are people in your life whom you find you primarily connect with in less than helpful ways. You know, maybe it's that hurtful banter, maybe it's sharing and gossip together. Again, try to be proactive when you go into those interactions and think about how you could fill those spaces with positive things. Now use the Ephesians 4.29 litmus test. Are my words helpful for building up others? Are they benefiting those who listen? And finally, as well as being self-aware and proactive, we also need to know how to move forward after we have stumbled, because we will stumble. But God shows us the way forward. Hear these words from 1 John. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins... He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. 
He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. I love how pastoral this passage is, uh, that it really holds intention, uh, both the ideal for kingdom living and the reality of human fallibility, uh, which I think is especially relevant when it comes to the subject of taming the tongue. I mean, the ideal is obviously for us to not sin, to never stumble in anything we say. But if we do, we have a way forward, and it starts with confession. We need to be in the habit of being accountable for our words and to confess our sins, and not just to God, but to one another. I can remember a handful of times within Christian community where someone has made a lighthearted joke at my expense and while I hadn't given it a second thought, the person has nevertheless come back to me maybe a day or two later to sincerely and specifically apologize for their joke. And I'm always so struck in those moments by that demonstration of spiritual maturity Because it's not like it's a knee-jerk apology in response to me being obviously hurt. I mean, they're jokes that I have laughed off and genuinely haven't been bothered by. But the person still choosing to come back anyway, to check in, to apologize, it just shows such a commitment to accountability for their words. And that is a great thing to cultivate. Because our words are powerful. And we won't always get it right. But by God's grace, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and he will forgive us. He will purify us. This is the glorious assurance that we have as followers of Jesus. So friends, as we go out into the world this week, let us heed these warnings from James and be mindful of the power of our words. Let us be especially cognizant of the cultural influences on our speech habits. And in the words of 2 Corinthians 10, let us take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. And in so doing, may we no longer conform to the patterns of this world, but be a set-apart kingdom people shining forth the glory and the goodness of our Creator. Amen.